The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. And today we're going to talk about the fact that it's no longer a question. The whole purpose of this show has been to point out the virtues of free market health care and to point out the flaws in government-run socialized medicine, which is more and more the direction that we seem to be going. And it dawned on me over the past couple of weeks that it's not even a question anymore. anymore. It's not if free market health care delivers better health care. It delivers health care. Socialized medicine does not deliver health care, and I'm going to point out how and exactly what I'm talking about. I've had uh, difficulties with my low back my entire life. I threw my back out for the first time when I was in the seventh grade, and um, at the time, uh, when I was younger, playing sports, football, and soccer, and things like that, I'd throw my back out every now and then. Um, And when I did, I was really debilitated for about three days, but my body would recover and I'd be able to go back to doing things. Um, Some of the things where I noticed it the most, I remember a friend of mine invited me to go to an ROTC training on a weekend, and I did it as a favor to him. And uh, I remember even even at this young age, I can't remember, I was in eighth grade or ninth grade or something like that, my ability to be able to stand at attention, I, I couldn't do it. I would have this pain in my back that made it really uncomfortable. And so if I had to stand there for any period of time, it was, it was really uncomfortable and I couldn't do it. Um, but I played soccer and football and other sports and, you know, did all of the things that young people do, especially in Hawaii, surfing and, and all kinds of stuff. I was very active, but I did have this issue with my low back. Now, as I got older, the problems got worse. Uh, a lot of people with uh, back issues will experience this. I remember when I was 17 or 18, I went to go try out for the U.S. national team in soccer. I was one of three kids that got sent from the state of Hawaii to go compete uh, to be on this, uh, I want to say it was the under-20 national team in soccer. And I remember right when I got to Las Vegas, I threw my back out. And so I had to go through that entire camp with this back that was uh, not functioning. So it was very tight and painful. And, you know, I I was not even close to my best. Now, I would love to be able to blame not making the team on my back, but I would not have made it anyway. But it always bothered me that I wasn't able to give my full-throated best effort because because my back was out. Now, again, time goes on. I, you know, throw my back out periodically. I, st- I started to get used to it. I knew what to expect. I-, I could feel it coming on, and I'd feel that muscle spasm, and then it would just go. And once it went, that was it. I knew the next three days I was just going to have to take it easy, and it would eventually go away, and I'd, I'd get back to my normal self. Well, Eventually, you fast forward, I get into medical school, we start learning about backs, and I paid extra attention to it because I was a back pain sufferer. And one of the things they taught us was kids don't really suffer from back issues. And I just remember thinking, huh, I don't think that is accurate because I was a kid and I was, um, I was suffering from issues related to back pain. And as I reflect on it, some of the things I think about are the way our healthcare system works in that 
the whole structure of how we foster inquisitive minds and how we enable doctors and medical professionals to think about problems and solve problems affects how good we are at doing these things. And I think one of the reasons that there's this kind of underlying notion that, you know, kids don't suffer from back issues. And again, this is my recollection from when I was in medical school 30 years ago. Things may have changed. Uh, and also, in full disclosure, it may be just that's what I'm hearing. Maybe maybe what they were saying is that it's very rare, but it typically doesn't happen. But I just remember hearing in my head that it doesn't happen. And the, and the reality is it does. And I think one of the reasons that we don't really pursue it is is it's uncommon so kids don't commonly suffer from debilitating back issues i think at the time it was difficult to see them the imaging with mri and things like that back in the in the day were not as as good as they are today and so it's harder to see small problems in the discs and i think there was also there's not really anything you could do about it if you can't identify exactly where the problem is in the back and you can't see that the problem's in the back what are you going to do i mean you can't operate you can't even inject all you can do is oral medications which is what they would do at the time but it still illustrates my point that the way our system of healthcare is set up incentivizes people to think certain ways and it affects the quality of the care that we get and whether or not we get care at all. And I'm just going to give you a, a clear example. So <clears throat> I've had uh, my neck fused twice. I have a three-level fusion in my neck. And I had my first fusion at the age of 35 when I was a resident. And fortunately for me, I happened to do my residency at the University of Miami where one of the world's greatest spine surgeons happens to work. And so I was fortunate to have both of my spine surgeries done by Dr. Eismont, who's widely recognized as one of the best, if not the best, spine surgeons on the planet. And he was also the chairman of my residency department. Well, I've had a bad spine from top to bottom, not just my neck, but my back. And over time, my back got worse and worse and worse. And when I hit about 50, my back was so bad that I couldn't even run um, because I would just I'd get out there, the pounding, I couldn't take it. And so I started to do things like elliptical for cardio exercise. And when I was in my 40s, I really suffered a lot. My back was degenerating a lot, which is typical of a lot of people who have uh, we call it lumbar spondylosis, which is basically wear and tear arthritis that affects your low back. And then as I started getting into my 50s, I couldn't run, but my day-to-day -day problems were getting better because my discs were wearing out and kind of getting burned out. These discs, when they're young and healthy, are, are jelly donuts that are full of fluid. And so when those discs start to degenerate, they elute this caustic material that irritates your back and causes pain. And as you get older, they, be, they desiccate. They lose their fluid. And so the discs, if, if they're not pressing on a nerve, which in my case they're not, they have less of these caustic juices to sort of irritate the nerves. Well, I started having problems about uh, six or seven months ago where my back was really getting painful. And people who know me, I was operating, I was wearing a back brace, and I was uh, um, really suffering. And so I imaged my back. I got x-rays, I got MRI, I got CT scan, and I was able to evaluate the status of my back and what I saw really frightened me. I had a really degenerated back. I had herniated discs at every level. 
and I started to get a little bit nervous. And one of the reasons was when you have discogenic back pain, there's not a whole lot that you can do for it according to the the mainstream of thinking. Uh, when we get, you know, we usually manage with spinal injections, uh, oral medications, bracing, activity modification. And when people have significant degeneration, they will undergo a lumbar fusion. Well, lumbar fusions don't work as well as we'd like. We The literature tells us that only about 60% of people get satisfactory, satisfactory relief of their pain, which makes it a low-yield surgery, meaning there are a lot of people who undergo this relatively big surgery, although nowadays with percutaneous techniques, uh, it's a lot smaller. But the point is you get your back fused, it doesn't help that much, and then when you fuse one level, it puts stress on the levels uh, above and below and can lead to further degeneration there, and you end up right back in the same boat. So needless to say, because of my profession, because I've spent a lifetime treating these problems and seeing patients with these problems, I started to become quite concerned. I reached out to my spine surgeon or his assistant and said, hey, listen, I think I need to get on Dr. Eismont's radar again. I think I may be getting to the point where I might need to have something done because my pain is so severe, I just I can't even put my socks and my underwear on. And this went on for probably five months or so. I was really giving myself some time to recover. I really wanted to just see if it wouldn't just go away like it used to in the old days. Well, the other thing that worked out in my favor was I happened to be part of Barber Orthopedics, which is a full-service orthopedic clinic, and we happened to employ some of the finest spinal injection doctors on the planet. And I was able to lay down on the table and actually work the problem, meaning I looked at my x-rays, I looked at my MRI, I looked at my CT scan, I went over it with the doctors at Barber Orthopedics, and we discussed where we thought the problems were coming from. And so I'm a, I'm a needle wimp, so I was really apprehensive about getting the injection, and I know a lot of people who get spinal injections are apprehensive. It's very commonly done by, by doctors with, with uh, no sedation, they just use local anesthetic. But I'm really a baby when it comes to the injections. So I also happen to have some of the greatest doctors on the planet in terms of their ability to administer these injections with the least amount of discomfort. And so I went with Dr. Human, who was there, and Dr. Human laid me down. He gave me an injection in the spot that we thought was causing the most problem with some steroid and some anesthetic. And as soon as I, first of all, the experience was amazing. It was so it was so unpainful. Dr. Human did a fantastic job of talking me through the procedure meeting. He let me know what he was doing and he, he kept me so at ease with his ability to describe what was coming. So there was no there was no fear. I really felt like somebody was really controlling me, holding my hand, taking me through this procedure. I got the injection. It was relatively painless and immediately I had relief of my pain. So I was ecstatic. I got up off the bed. I immediately went right back to work and started doing my thing. And I was just loving not having this back pain. Uh, but then I woke up the next day and the pain uh, resolved. Or I'm sorry, the pain came back. Uh, not as bad, but over the next week or so, I was kind of right back to the same spot where I was. So I got sort of this temporary relief. 
and then it went away. Now, this commonly happens with spinal injections and, and frankly, injections of all sorts that you get temporary relief and sometimes the symptoms will return. So I did it again. I got another steroid shot mixed with anesthetic a couple of weeks later. Again, it was a fantastic experience with Dr. Human taking me through the entire process and, you know, kind of metaphorically holding my hand through it so that I was really comfortable through the entire procedure. And again, I immediately got relief. I got up off the table. I went back to work, started doing my thing. Again, the next day, the pain started coming back. And within a few days, I was right back to where I was. Now, because I understand the medicine and I know what's involved, I gave this a lot of thought. I was really wanting to avoid um, undergoing a, a lumbar spinal fusion if I could at all avoid it because... I'm still very active. I like to do MMA. For those of you who've been following me, I'm you know now an orange belt in my Krav Maga, and I'm actually tomorrow going to be testing for my advanced orange belt. So I just warn you: if anybody sees me on the street, don't mess with me. Um, but I, you know, I play golf. I still like to lift weights and exercise. I like to do this MMA. I want to be active, and I'm concerned if I was to get a lumbar fusion, I might not be able to do some of these things. So. I started reading, yes, reading. That's what doctors do when they have specific problems. We update ourselves on the literature. We learn about things that are happening in the news by reading available peer-reviewed literature that helps educate us and helps inform us about what's happening. I do it for all sorts of things related to my medical profession. And of course, I read about treatment of lumbar spondylosis. And so based on that reading, I didn't see anything that changed my opinions about what my options were or how to proceed. And so I grabbed Dr. Human for a third time. And again, I got an excellent injection with another steroid. And again, the pain started to come back over the next day. So I'm starting to see a pattern here. I'm getting an injection. I'm getting relief for a day or two, the pain starts to come back. And within a week, I'm kind of right back to where I started. And this is not totally unexpected. I've seen this with other patients. And I'm thinking to myself, what can I do here? Well, we happen to know that there's another option called platelet-rich plasma, which I've been using for uh, more than 10 years. It's it's a very effective uh, method of treatment for um, ligament, tendon, joint injuries and diseases. It can really help with pain. There's a lot of literature out there to uh, support its efficacy and sort of describe the mechanisms that we think are going on. The the first time I ever heard about PRP, uh, Kobe Bryant, the uh, the famous Lakers basketball player, went to Italy because at the time for an injection. I believe it, it was in his knee uh, because it wasn't really offered in the United States at the time. But uh, nowadays, PRP is is utilized by every major institution, the Mayo Clinic, the the Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins, Emory. Uh, it's, it's a mainstay of treatment. Now, PRP is not typically covered by your standard health insurances, your Blue Cross Blue Shield, your Aetna's, your United's. Uh, they typically don't don't cover the cost of doing PRP. And so 
it disincentivizes doctors from using PRP. But I've been using it for so long that I have seen with my own eyes and my own experience that PRP is amazing. And in fact, I feel like it's, and this is what we call anecdotal practice of medicine. I feel like when I give those injections that they're actually superior to steroid. Now, I still feel that that uh, steroid has a role and is a great medicine for certain types of injuries and you need to check with your doctor in deciding it. But I know that PRP has some benefits as well. And so I'm going to kind of weave this into the whole free market medicine versus uh, socialized government run healthcare in a minute. Uh, But stay with me. So I'm back to working on my back now. I've had several injections. I eventually got eight steroid injections uh, and every one of those eight injections had pretty much the same uh, effect, meaning I got about a day of relief and then the pain started coming back and within a few days to a week, I was right back to where I started. And I wanted to do this multiple times because I wanted to convince myself that steroid injections were not going to solve my problem long term. The other thing I did was I um, had, as I said, I looked on my CT scan and my MRI, I had disc issues at every level. So you got five lumbar vertebras, so I have five discs down there, and every one of them is herniated and causing problems. And when Dr. Human and I went through my MRI, we, we both agreed that it was the L2, L3 disc on the left side that was causing my major problem based on my physical exam. And so that was the area that we kept hitting uh, when when he was giving me my spinal injections. Now, I wanted to go and give an injection at every single level on my back. And this is not something that would typically be done by by your orthopedic surgeon. If you have your, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield or your Aetna, you're not, I don't want to pick on any particular, it doesn't matter what your health insurance is, but if you have your health insurance, you go see your doctor, you're never going to get a, a an approval to inject every level. But there is some utility in that. And so I had that ability. So I actually took advantage of my surgery center. I went there. They twilighted me, meaning they gave me just enough anesthesia to make me fall asleep. And then Dr. Human was able to inject every level of my back. And when I woke up, I had complete relief of my symptoms. We used steroid for the entire thing. And what we found was the next day, the pain started coming back. And within a few days to a week, all of my pain was right back to where I was, debilitating. I was miserable. Now, the importance of this was I was working the problem, meaning I had all of these issues in my low back and I'm trying to figure out what exactly is causing my problem and what are my options to solve it. And I personally, because it's my back, I wanted to do the least invasive thing. Uh, And so what I realized was there was really no difference between getting the one injection at that left-sided L2-3 disc versus my entire back. So I kind of eliminated all the other areas as being a significant contributor to my back pain, and we really narrowed it down to it was that L2-3 disc on the left side in particular. And so my next injection, I elected to go with anesthetic and platelet-rich plasma, which is what I did. And Dr. Human did another amazing job. He metaphorically held my hand through the entire process. The injection was absolutely painless and stress-free. And I meet the, the PRP was mixed with anesthetic. So I immediately had relief of my pain. And the next day I had no pain. And the day after that I had no pain. 
And I started to realize that the weeks bled into months and my pain was resolved and I was blown away. I could not believe how great my back was doing using platelet-rich plasma and the the amazing thing about it is you don't really hear a lot about using platelet-rich plasma in injections of this sort and it got me to thinking why is that and so there are a lot of lessons to learn here about the differences between free market medicine and socialized medicine socialized medicine is not incentivized to work the problem for you they're not incentivized to to figure out exactly what's wrong with you and tailor care to your particular needs but free market healthcare is when you establish a doctor patient relationship and you have a doctor who's committed to solving your problems you're going to get a much different uh, outcome now in this particular case I couldn't have been more motivated to work the problem it was my back so I mean I was willing to leave no stone unturned to solve this problem and I got this platelet-rich plasma injection. My back has not felt this good in 20 years. I went back to MMA. I went back to playing golf. Now, you have to understand, for 20 years, if I play golf or do MMA or whatever, I mean, I know the next couple of days are going to be rough. And then I kind of suck it up. I recover a bit. And then, you know, I go back to doing my thing. And I know a lot of you are out there living the same life as we all get older. Things start to wear out, and it gets tough to make it through the day. But... After this PRP injection, I mean, I would play golf or I would go to MMA class, and I mean, I'm fine. And I I was really amazed. It was just unbelievable when I'm watching TV or laying in bed or sitting at my desk doing work, no back pain. I mean, I hadn't had this experience in 20 years. It was absolutely fabulous. Changed my attitude about life. I was happy. And then a couple of months in, uh, my back started coming back a little bit. Now, I was still better than I'd been in 20 years, but it wasn't zero like I was experiencing for the previous couple of months. So it wasn't bad. It was really minor. But when the pain got to the point where I was like, you know what, let me go to Dr. Human and uh, get another PRP injection, which I did, and now I'm back to zero pain again. Now, there's some lessons here. Number one, the way Dr. Human gives those injections is a reflection of free market healthcare. Now, Dr. Human's part of Barber Orthopedics, and he knows that we have a free market practice where our goal is to serve our patients, and we don't really uh, tailor things to the uh, you know to how insurance companies want us to do it. We do it based on our understanding of medicine. Of course, I know for the people out there watching, we follow every rule and regulation. We don't violate uh, medical rules and regulations or laws or anything out there, but we use our understanding of medicine to practice medicine and to do things that are in the patient's best interest within the law. I know it's important that I put that out there. And um, customer service is one of those things that comes about in a free market healthcare system and not in in a government-run socialized medicine system. And that is not to say that you're not going to find a good doctor or a good nurse here and there in a socialized setting. It's just going to be much, much, much less common. Uh, and I feel the further we get down this road of government takeover of healthcare, the the more rare it's going to be to find quality people, myself included, because as you are 
disincentivized to engage in certain behaviors like customer service, which takes time and energy and practice, you're just not going to do it. And so Dr. Human's ability to talk to me and touch me and hold my hand, metaphorically speaking, and take me through this process is part of the treatment, as opposed to somebody who's uh, an employed bureaucrat at the VA, which I've seen that too, where there's really nothing in it for them other than their own humanity to to do all that stuff. It's kind of a, a, a hassle for the doctor to have to, you know, talk the patient through and go all this. Sometimes they like to just come in and just they do the injection and that's it. There's no talking at all. And so as a patient receiving an, an injection in that scenario, there would be fear and there would be apprehension and there would be uncertainty that would affect your your experience. And so the fact that Dr. Human's bedside manner is so fantastic is, is a testament to free market healthcare and the incentive that is placed on a doctor like Dr. Human to have a fantastic bedside manner because we know we are earning patients' trust and earning their desire to come back and spend their own resources to, to have us treat them. The other thing is working the problem. You would never be able to, and I, I'm, when I'm talking to you folks out there, sadly, just about none of you would be able to treat your back the way I was able to treat my back because if you're using your health insurance, the insurance company will never approve injections at all of these different levels. Uh, they also, it's a very slow process, so you have to submit the you have to submit the request for injections to the insurance company. They have an approval process, which we've talked about on this show, is largely let's deny it and make it a hassle so that the doctor loses interest and eventually the request goes away. And so this ability to get multiple injections of the same kind, then switch to PRP, then go to the OR and you know have me get twilighted so that we can inject every level of my back comfortably, they would never approve this. But in a free market healthcare system, they would. And I know that for a fact because my practice is free market healthcare and I am trying to figure out ways to get my patients injected in the same manner that I got injected. And that takes time and energy and effort, but it's my craft. It's what we do as, as private doctors. And sadly, there are fewer and fewer private doctors out there. We now know that at least last time I checked, 53% of doctors are now employed by hospital systems or other uh, large practices. And their ability to independently think is being severely affected. And what happens here is when you're a surgeon or a doctor and your job is to inject spines, let's just use this particular skill set. The reason that you do it, that you go to school, that you undergo the training, uh, that you take the time to learn that craft is you're going to be rewarded for it somehow. You're going to get a rewarding job. You're going to make enough money to be satisfied, to compensate you for the time, energy, and effort that you put into to performing that task or learning that task. And when you get into a competitive marketplace, you need to keep upping your game because the other competitors out there are going to be doing the same thing. And in order for you to keep your patients coming to see you and not going elsewhere is by making sure that you manage all of the different aspects of it, that the experience is not scary and not painful, that the result of the injection is effective. We were just leading, reading a lawsuit. There was a, 
a medical practice where the doctor injected the spinal cord and then injected the dye into the spinal cord and the patient woke up paralyzed. Now, that's not to say that can't happen anywhere, and it's a horribly unfortunate situation, but I can just tell you some inside baseball stuff that the more competition that goes into uh, producing or providing a certain service, the less those those adverse events are going to occur because you've got quality people that are competing and working to get better, and you're not going to get this sort of lackadaisical doctor that you get in a socialized medicine setting because when you're an employee in a socialized medicine, it's kind of think about the DMV uh, where there's no complaint desk there's no upside and that's not to say you can't go to the DMV and get a pleasant person or whatever but uh, you're you're less likely to than in a free market situation and um, the 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 third-party payer system, whether it's government or the insurance companies, and you know we can get into this discussion on other shows about the insurance companies have this relationship with government that at this point, especially with the passing of Obamacare, that they are just quasi-government entities. The government has passed laws through the Affordable Care Act that basically tell insurance companies the things that they have to cover the things that how much money they can charge they actually have laws that within the obamacare law that says how much money they can lose and then that loss beyond that gets passed on to the taxpayers and so for all intents and purposes the insurance companies are government-run health care there's no real incentive uh for them to to and, and it's against the law they can't change policies Uh, to try and earn market share because the government has told them this is what a policy has to look like. It has to cover, you know, female care, even if you're menopausal. It has to, you know, cover all of these different things, you know, nursing home stuff, even if you're 20 years old and you're a long way away from a nursing home. And so all of these government interventions affect the delivery of the health care system. And so you got an employee who works in an insurance-type scenario where, you see a patient, they have a complicated problem, the doctor knows immediately, well, this patient's got all these different levels of um, disc disease, and I know the insurance company is never going to approve me to inject them all, so let me just see if I can get one. They make a guess, they give the one injection. A lot of times, and this is really inside baseball stuff, whenever I hear people tell me that they got a spinal injection elsewhere, I don't know anything what that means. Because the quality of an injection, the success of an injection is so user-dependent. You get somebody like a Dr. Human who's literally the best in the world that I've ever seen doing it, you're going to get a different injection than another person who says to themselves, I don't get reimbursed very much to do this injection. The insurance company is only going to let me do this one or two levels. The only way I could really increase my revenue is to do more injections. And so I can do more injections if I'm less accurate with where I inject the medicine. And let's face it, what's, what are they going to do if I give an injection and it doesn't work? I mean, it's not like you can go complain somewhere. It's not like you could really go see a different doctor. I mean, you could, but in this environment with this government control, you're going to get the same situation. And so what you get are these doctors that want to avoid any problems meaning they don't want to accidentally stick the needle in the spinal cord and give you know, the medicine in there and paralyze somebody. So what they do is they cheat the needle in a different spot, superficial, but not necessarily in the area 
that you need to relieve the pain because in order to get a great injection, you need to put that needle right in the correct spot, and that takes a little bit of time. And listen, I'm not impugning any particular doctor. This is human nature. This is how we all are as providers, as human beings. We do what we are incentivized to do, and we don't do what we're not incentivized to do. And in order for you to do a spinal injection, it takes time. It takes expertise. It takes a little bit of risk. You you know, you know you're got to make sure that you're putting the needle in the right spot. There's a skill set to being able to talk a patient through this so that it's not scary or uncomfortable. And all of these things will get done if there's a reward for the person who's performing it. And right now with the way our insurance company is set up, our healthcare system, with this massive penetration of government control, we're getting, uh, we're getting, uh, well, as we're talking about with these spinal injections, you're getting spinal injections that are not nearly the level of what they could be if you allowed craftsmen to solve problems, deliver, develop goods and services that they could then sell to customers. And listen, when I was in medical school, they used to teach us, especially in the early years, that uh, we we don't have customers we have patients i remember turning to my friend like oh, it's what's what's the difference you know it was some kind of arrogant saying i felt like oh a patient is a superior relationship than a customer well after practicing after being in medicine for almost 30 years and practicing for 20 i can tell you i would much rather be treated like a customer than a patient because with a customer i spend every waking second trying to figure out what is going to make my patient happy and and what's not going to make my patient happy and sometimes those requests are unreasonable now <clears throat> you want me to take a break all right so david's given me the heads up that it's time to take a break so we're going to go to this commercial break. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. I'm talking to you on America's Web Radio, and we'll continue this conversation when we come back in just a minute. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. And today we're discussing the fact that the question, it's no longer a question. Free market health care is what delivers you quality health care, and socialized medicine denies you care. You don't get care through socialized medicine. And I had this epiphany hit me over the last several months because my back was was going out because I have significant disc disease at all the levels in my low back. And it really dawned on me as I was working my own problem on my back at my clinic, getting the best doctors in the world to inject me, going over my MRI CT scans, and working the problem by administering treatment methods that work and not simply treatment methods that are approved by the insurance companies. And people, uh, I really think about... You know, I'm always trying to use my frame of reference from the inside baseball. I'm in the belly of the beast in terms of I've been uh, in medicine for a long time. I've seen the academic side. I've seen the free market side. I've seen the socialized medicine side at the VA. And I have a perspective that I'm trying to share with you. And spinal injections are really one of the things that I always think about as being an excellent example of how socialized medicine destroys care and how free market medicine makes care effective and if you have arthritis in your neck or your back and you're going to see a a doctor who specializes in spinal injections there are a lot of great ones out there but there a lot of them are great and they're handicapped because the insurance companies are so slow to approve injections and so limiting on what they'll allow the doctor to inject that it prevents the doctor from really being able to do all of the things that he or she needs to do in order to come to an accurate diagnosis and then come up with an appropriate treatment plan. You know, the spinal column is very complicated. There are a lot of articulations there, and you have facet joints and disc joints. you got nerves and cartilage and bone spurs. you got all these different kinds of things that uh, can be causing problems, and it takes some skill and some experience and some time, frankly, to be able to figure out exactly what's going on and to come up with treatment solutions. Now, I was explaining on my own back, I probably had about eight spinal injections of steroid and anesthetic, which gave me temporary relief for my back. And then I went to PRP, platelet-rich plasma, and I got... um, I got like 100% relief or pretty close to 100%. I have not felt this good in 20 years. And after two injections of platelet-rich plasma, I'm absolutely stunned at, at how well I'm doing. Now, one of the things that's a little bit confusing to me as a scientist, as a doctor, as a business person, is why isn't PRP more more out there. Why are insurance companies not improving PRP? I mean, it's super safe. This is my experience. It is super safe. Nowadays, there are lots of peer-reviewed articles that show efficacy of PRP is uh, superior to steroid in certain articles. It's superior to artificial joint fluid in certain articles. Um, There's a lot of evidence to, to suggest and to demonstrate that PRP is safe and effective. And that is consistent with my own experience over the last 10, 15 years using platelet-rich plasma. And I have numerous uh, anecdotal stories of professional athletes, uh, um, patients who've had problems that have been um, 
you know, we, they were unable to solve these problems by any other method, whether it be steroid injections or surgery or, or physical therapy. None of these things solved the problem, but we gave PRP and it resolved it. And again, anecdotal stories is not science, but anecdotal stories are part of the understanding of how things are done in medicine. And, you know, I'm always talking about and preaching on this show that as we've gotten more and more government penetration in healthcare, they try to develop this concept of it's not FDA approved. We hear that a lot these days. It's not FDA approved. Well, you have to understand what FDA approval means. I mean, FDA approval is expensive and it takes a lot to get something FDA approved. And for example, uh, these big companies will get uh, artificial joint fluids, for example, Hyalgan and, and these others, uh, artificial joint fluids that we will inject in patients with mild osteoarthritis or mild degeneration of a joint. It's FDA approved in the knee, but the companies not gonna, that makes the, the artificial joint fluid, they're not going to spend money to get it FDA approved in the ankle and the shoulder and the other things, but it makes sense. If it works in the knee, well, then it might work in the shoulder, and that's how FDA approval works. Once I'm approved to use a certain medicine or something like that in one area, <clears throat> I have the ability as a treating physician and with the consent of my patient to use it in another area. Well, platelet-rich plasma is one of those things that's highly effective, and I'm often wondering why Why isn't it more, Why it's so effective is kind of the point that I'm making, it's so effective and so safe. Why isn't it more widely used? Why are insurance companies, they do approve it some, but it's really sluggish and slow, and why is that? And I mean, just me thinking out loud, as we like to do on this show, sometimes I'm wondering if, for those of you who don't know what platelet-rich plasma is, it's a process where we go and we draw blood from a patient, just like when you go to the doctor, we draw your blood, we take it and we spin it down in a centrifuge, and it will basically separate that blood out into three layers, the cells, the red blood cells, we get rid of that. The top layer is what we call platelet-poor plasma that is not got a lot of platelets in it, and then the middle stuff is what we call platelet-rich plasma. So we sterilely separate out the platelet-rich plasma, and that serum we inject uh, into areas of injury or disease like you know chronic tendon injuries or chronic ligament injuries or or uh, minor uh, joint degenerations or pains and things like that and there are a lot of other areas where we do this but you'll inject it and patients will get um, amazing symptom relief and I remember when we first started working as a scientific community with platelet-rich plasma kind of the concept is and I want to be careful you know people will talk about stem cells you know stem cells are cells that are that are uh at the beginning of development and so they have the capacity to change into a lot of different things and you know stem cells are like the miracle cell you know if you can get a stem cell and put it in areas of the brain and regenerate brain tissue which typically is not possible uh, that would be a major medical breakthrough and so you're always going to have charlatans out there selling things and people purposely conflate stem cells with uh, with platelet-rich plasma and other things but the reality is platelet-rich plasma works and and at first the thinking was that the growth factors that are located in the blood and you put that in an area like a damaged joint can help it recover and that made sense to me um, 
I, I think of it when I explain to my patients, it's a little bit like fertilizer. You know, if you take the fertilizer and you put it in the soil, it's not necessarily going to make ev- anything grow, but it provides everything necessary so that if you plant stuff, it'll help it grow. And so that's kind of how I think of platelet-rich plasma. And so when people were having issues, that was my intention as I was reading the literature that was available at the time and giving these injections. But what I started to notice uh, right off the bat was people would say, wow, my pain's gone. And I'd think to myself, that's not really why I'm giving the injection. Like, it must just be placebo, meaning you think I'm doing something and so your mind is telling you that your pain's gone, which, you know, placebo can be a very powerful tool. Uh, in in medicine and doctors are trained to use it and should use it and I do as well too but over time it started happening so often and so um, manifestly effective that I realized something is going on with this platelet-rich plasma that is really affecting people's pain threshold it's really curing pain and now I've experienced it myself personally the, the and you know we have literature now that, that there are these things called lysosomes in the plasma. I think of lysosomes like little Pac-Men that go in and gobble up the molecules that cause pain, and that seems to be uh, one of the things that's happening there. I use platelet-rich plasma um, in my post-operative cases to inject in the field. There are a lot of what we call vitamin K-dependent clotting factors that it seems to me that by injecting that plasma. It helps with post-operative pain, and it also sort of prevents bleeding and bruising because those clotting factors are sort of sealing off the operative field. And so my experience over the years have kind of guided how I use this platelet-rich plasma and uh, have really opened my eyes to the fact that it is a really effective treatment. I've actually gotten to the point now where I feel like platelet-rich plasma is my number one go-to when I'm injecting in joints. And the reason is, or tendons, and the reason is... Steroid is highly effective, but people get a thing called a steroid flare from time to time, which is an injection site reaction where for a day or two, they actually have more pain than they had before they got the injection. And it's important to counsel your patients when they get a steroid injection that they may experience a flare so that when it happens, they don't freak out. And it's not common, but it does happen from time to time. I have not had so much as an injection site reaction uh, using 10 or 15 years of using PRP. And so it truly is safe. It's highly effective. And the thing that always gets to me is why is it not more of a focus of research and development? And and one of the things that pops into my head is platelet-rich plasma is your blood. It's not some medication that we can sell to you for, or, you know, a a pharmaceutical company can sell to you for, for high dollar costs and make a ton of money. About the only thing you can do is sell the instruments necessary to harvest the platelet-rich plasma. And I've been doing this now for so long that we can do that relatively cheaply. And so it just enters my mind. I've got this medical technique that seems to be incredibly safe and effective in my own practice. And I just would think, and this is just me speculating, I just would think it would be further down down the field of research and development and utilization in the general public based on its safety and efficacy. But that conversation is for another day. But what we're trying to focus on here is how when you have a doctor-patient relationship and you have a doctor who's actually committed to you as a patient and focused on solving your problems, you're going to get a very different care than you will if you're being treated by a government bureaucrat, as is sadly happening more and more often. And so I use the experience of my own back 
getting these injections in a way, solving the problem, working the problem in a way, and then actually getting myself to a point where I haven't been this happy in 20 years. And it, it dawned on me, most of you folks couldn't get this treatment. You're not, you wouldn't have the ability to go find a doctor who would be able to work through your insurance and get approval for these different injections over the time period that I did. Uh, but if we had a truly competitive free market system, doctors like myself and others would be, f- you know, frantically trying to streamline this procedure and and control costs through competition. I, you know, people always ask me what would you charge for a certain procedure, and my answer is always as much as I could get. You know, when you talk about a free market, um, the thing that keep the only thing that keeps costs down is competition. Free market competition is the only thing that controls price. And to the extent that you think that you're having price controlled by the government, they're not. They're simply changing who pays. But somebody always pays. And when it's a government uh, bureaucracy, you're always paying a premium for, for crappy stuff. And Listen, we've talked about this on this show a number of times, and it, it, it really is important to understand the four different ways the great Milton Freeman uh, economist talked about the four ways to spend money. You can spend uh, other people's money on other people. That's what the government does. It's the worst form of spending. You're spending, or the government is spending other people's money on other people. They couldn't care about quality and they don't care about costs. It's not their money and the good or service that they're getting. It's not for them. You can spend other people's money on yourself. The quality matters because you're buying it for yourself. The cost doesn't matter. It's other people's money. You can spend your money on somebody else. Cost matters. It's your money. But you don't really care too much about the quality because you're giving it to somebody else. And then the most effective way to spend money is your money on yourself. Cost matter and quality matter. And that's why free market competition gives you the most choices with the um, greatest quality at the lowest price. And you know, we for many years we've been talking about this: is free market healthcare better than socialized medicine? And and I'm just telling you, in the last couple of years, just my experience in healthcare, I'm starting to see it's not even a question anymore. Free market healthcare gives you quality healthcare. Socialized medicine denies you care. And I'm just going to give you some other examples here. My mother is is in her 80s now, and uh, she was taking out the garbage. And my brother implored her, please don't take out the garbage. But my mom has always been stubborn. And so she she slipped and she twisted her ankle. And uh, my brother and my mom called wondering what they should do. And so they FaceTimed me in. And I took my brother through an examination of my mother. And I actually was quite concerned that she may have broken her ankle. And I know my brother was kind of like, oh, it's such a... Um, it's very difficult to load my mother up in a car and get her to the emergency room. I know a lot of us have had this experience, but I, you know, I said, listen, you're going to have to do it. So he gets her to the emergency room and a, you know, a bunch of time goes by and I sent out a message. Hey, what's up? Where are we at? And my brother says, well, we're back with the doctors uh, in the emergency room and um, they haven't even looked at the ankle yet. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, they're we're doing a heart workup on her. They're doing a nursing home workup on her and, and, you know, a neuropsych evaluation and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, we've been through this before with my mother. When you get a patient who comes in with Medicare, which is basically socialized medicine, emergency rooms sadly are trained to run up the bill. 
whatever Medicare will pay for, that's what they'll do. And it's almost like the treatment of the problem, not almost, in many cases, exactly like the treatment of the problem that the patient came in for, it's an afterthought. And so I had to tell my brother, you make sure that they at least x-ray mom's ankle before you leave. And so they, of course, did this crazy long workup and eventually got the x-ray on my mother, uh, and it was broken. Now, they were trying to do some things that were unnecessary uh, for the treatment of the ankle because they're not used to having a patient whose son is an orthopedic surgeon, and I looked at it, and I could tell my mother did not need surgery, and so I made them uh, put her in a, a cast boot, and uh, she came home and we're treating her non-operatively. The point I'm trying to make is we've got this government penetration running our healthcare system. My mom goes to the hospital and basically they do this crazy workup that, listen, has a cost to you. That's not free. The emergency room is doing all this testing that I don't even want for my mother, that we don't want, that's not necessary. And they're just basically running up the bill, the useless bill. And that bill is being transported onto the American taxpayer because we are being taxed to pay for Medicare and Medicaid. And because it's other people spending other people's money on other people, nobody cares about the cost. It's just wasteful. But when you need something for yourself, the the government will decide, no, we're not going to inject those. Or we're not, sorry, we're not going to pay for those. So... There are areas to spend money on, and then there are areas not to spend money on. And one of the analogies I like to use, I remember when I used to go to a summer soccer camp, and I used to like it when I was a kid. I was 10 or 11. I'd go with my friends, and we'd stay there for six weeks over the summer in a soccer camp, and we would go to the cafeteria. Now, the cafeteria food at soccer summer camp back in the 70s was not spectacular, but to us, it was free. And meaning to us, meaning... My dad paid, you know, whatever it costs to go to the soccer camp, but I wasn't paying. So we would get our tray, and as we would go down the line, we would just take a couple of everything, two pies, a jello, the meat, a burger, a taco, you know, all this junk, two milks, a juice. We go sit down at the table, and I would take a bite of something. Oh, I don't like it. Sip of that, eh. One of those, but I took three. And you basically left like 99% of the food untouched and you got up and you left. Now, none of that was high quality stuff, uh, but I wasted 99% of it because it wasn't coming out of my pocket at the point of service. It was being paid for by a government, my dad at the time. And um, because of that behavior, it was incredibly wasteful. If you add up all the food that all the kids are wasting over that period of time, that is a major percentage of the resources that the, you know, the entity has to spend. And that is exactly what is happening with your health care. You're getting this cafeteria food where most of your care is not even that great. Uh, but, you, you know, you get what you pay for. I mean, you get things, whether it's paid for or not, whether you need it or not, whether you want it or not. You're getting braces and splints and medicines and and neuropsych workups and nursing home evaluations and all of these different things that you would never spend your own money on, but because the government is spending it, you kind of shrug your shoulders and you're like, ah, whatever. Um, We also talked about as the providers get in there and they're incentivized to do less and less, you get 
a, a lesser quality of individual going into it. For me, I was uh, 15 years of training to become an orthopedic surgeon. And I can just tell you, frankly, when I was young and thinking about what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, I actually made a calculation like, well, how much money do I want to make? Is it worth me going to medical school, to residency, to fellowship, and you know, practicing for all this time to not make any money during that time because I'm in school, not developing any 401k, you know, and in my case, because I applied to medical school five times uh, before getting accepted, I didn't, I didn't even get to the starting line of working till I was 37 years old. So I had nothing saved. I had to make a calculation. Am I now going to make money enough that makes it worth putting in all that time and effort and the risks and everything associated with being a doctor? And... Um, and at the time I did it, the answer was yes. But today, you're going to go through all that training to be a government bureaucrat who's being issued edicts, best practices, and uh, you know hospitals are telling doctors how to practice and what they can and can't say, what they can and can't think about. You have to say the party line. Um, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And so a lot of smart, quality people are deciding to go into things other than medicine. And what, is the, what does medicine do when it doesn't have quality, capable people to fill a position? Well, they fill that position with somebody who isn't capable. And let me just give you some examples of this. Um, I have a close personal friend who had an 80-plus-year-old father who was admitted to the hospital not too long ago, and, and sadly they passed um, because they were 86. Uh, but while the patient was in the hospital, we learned a lot about patient care. And nowadays, we have a um, professional staff called hospitalists. And a lot of hospitalists are fantastic. You know, people hear the calling to be doctors, and there are a variety of reasons why certain doctors will want to be a hospitalist because it's shift work. And, you know, if you're going to have a family and things like that, it can be it can be better. But but having this kind of shift work mentality has really deteriorated the care of patients. Now, in the old days, when I first started, if you got admitted to the hospital, your personal doctor, your primary care doctor, your doctor who knows you, in many cases has known you your whole life, would have privileges and come into the hospital and they would manage your medical issues while you're being dealt with for you know appendicitis or a broken bone or whatever it is that you're being admitted into the hospital. Well... Over time, we eliminated these, uh, this practice, and now we have hospitalists who are shift workers. And so when they come in, they don't really know the patient, and their mentality is such that they're just trying to get to the end of the shift. And so what happens is they're putting together and working up a patient, and they're doing it quickly. They're doing it in a way that... Um, Solves their they there are these per, perverse incentives meaning you have to order a certain amount of tests and do certain things is how you're being evaluated now in the hospital as a doctor and so they'll they'll basically did you order a neuropsych test this patient was of Medicare age and you could have ordered a neuropsych test whether they wanted it or not it's almost like the they bill whatever it is they can bill and so what we found was my friend's father every week they'd have a new shift come on they started working him up for things like cirrhosis of the liver which he didn't have heart disease which he didn't have and all of these different things which he didn't have and it really struck me as man we've gotten to the point where 
the government penetration in healthcare isn't it just isn't just making our healthcare worse. It's making it totally ineffective. Now, um, I'm going to stay on this subject for a little bit. I didn't even get to a, a smidgen of all the of, of all the examples uh, that that I had today, and so we're going to we're going to touch on these in the coming weeks. But the thing I really want to leave you guys with is I had a back issue that I solved, and I'm so happy about it. And I did it because it was my back. I was incentivized to solve the problem, and I had access to all the tools that I needed to solve that problem. And that's what you get in a free market healthcare system, and it's what you don't get in a socialized medicine government-run system. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.